today, I'd like to begin uh, by talking about politics, which is going to be fun. And uh, from the looks of it, it feels like our world is on fire. And many of you feel the emotions that come with everything that's happening in our world right now, politically, especially in the U.S. And if you haven't been to our church for very long, uh, I just want to make it absolutely and abundantly clear that historically we have never supported a candidate or fought against a candidate. As long as I've been the pastor of this church, which has been since its beginning, and when I was on pastoral staff at Vineyard Columbus, uh, we never did anything like that. Not once from the stage did we ever advocate uh, or like, you know, really denigrate any kind of candidate. And that's not what we're going to do today. So be at ease. Uh, That's not what we're going to do. But I do think that we are in a cultural moment that in order for me to be a responsible pastor, um, we have to address what's going on and help the church of Jesus Christ think through uh, what is going on and try to make sense of that. And that's what we're going to try to do today. And so mostly what I'm going to try to do is offend everyone in the room, (laughs) which (laughs) as we look to Jesus. And now there's a lot of reasons why we have a lot going on politically uh, and, uh, and, and a lot of it has to do that we're being formed a lot by fear, our experience of fear. And it's, uh, our fear is being formed by a lot of what we read, cable news, maybe you have a Twitter account, uh, maybe uh, Facebook, if you're, or and whatever it is, uh, TikTok, whatever you have. I love TikTok. It's so addictive. Um, you know, and uh, you're getting 24-7, you know, news. The 24-7 news cycle is really... It impacts you and I. And then when we come to this Sunday morning service or whether you go to a church another place, you get, you know, you're being formed by that maybe an hour a week. So it's 24-7 news versus an hour a week. And many of us are being formed by the fear that we experience. And, um, you know, people aren't stupid. Political parties aren't stupid. The media isn't stupid. You know, we can feel, we can, we can be hurt by that kind of fear because those folks can parlay in fear. And, you know, as long as we have people feel a sense of urgency when it comes to an issue, well, then we can motivate a certain kind of action. And behind that is like, hey, you know, hey, if you vote for this candidate, well, that's a vote for socialism. Uh, if you vote for that candidate, well, that's a vote for racism. And what can happen is, is what we're really saying is like, hey, we're going to help people be a little bit more afraid so that we can drive certain kinds of actions. And frankly, that drives money as well. The fastest way to motivate someone financially is to do what? It's to make them afraid, to make them feel like everything is at risk. And so right now, right now, I mean, we just got through some elections. There was some surprises and all that. But right now, besides what was happening in the elections, the political discussion right now is reaching a fever pitch. There's a lot of yelling. There's a lot of emotion. The conversation's getting louder and the arguments are getting stronger. And a lot of that is fear that is driving the conversation. Now, I would love to say that when I look across the landscape of America, I could say that Jesus' followers are standing apart from the fray. We're apart from all this. The followers of Jesus, that we're driven by hope, that we're driven by the peace that's found in Jesus Christ. I wish I could say that the fear that is affecting everybody isn't affecting the church. 
like what's happening in the church feels different than what's happening in the rest of the world. I would love to be able to say that. But the truth is, is that when I look at what's happening in the dialogue of America, it seems to be that the church is a lot of times at the center. And it's the church that's pushing the hardest in this dialogue. Do you understand what I'm saying here? I mean, have you experienced this? Am I completely off? No, I'm not. I'm not even going to ask. That's, that's rhetorical. I'm on. All right? And so October 24th, uh, there's a wonderful article in The Atlantic that was provided by Dr. Kate. Hi, Dr. Kate. She sent it over to us. It was written by a guy named Peter Wehner, W-E-H-N-E-R. Not sure how to say that. Wehner. Wehner. Uh, and the name of the article is The Evangelical Church is Breaking Apart. And you know the Atlantic. They're known for their very short, succinct articles. Um, and in the article, uh, they don't really go into mainline or more progressive streams of churches. They really were focusing on the evangelical church in this article. And so in the article, there's a church in Virginia called the McLean Bible Church. And recently, they experienced a massive disinformation campaign that was used uh, over Facebook um, that was used in Facebook to try to get certain elders not elected to the elder board. They were treating the election of the elder board much like you would treat uh, like a candidate for president. <laughs> there was a disinformation campaign, and they were, they were creating rumors about the, uh, the particular elders, their political biases, and said, we cannot have these guys uh, represent us on the elder board level. Uh, the article walks through how tribes and churches within America, how they're defining themselves not only by something that they read in the Bible, but also their political affiliations. Like, if you're a part of this church, it's Jesus plus you have to look just like this. You have to have this kind of political belief in order to belong. And more and more, what we see is that, uh, in addition to that, the article lays out that more and more people will get offended or personally offended by something because a pastor or a church leadership team won't do enough to support their personal views on a particular political issue. So it's not just I'm offended because you're a mean pastor, Pastor Chris. It's I don't feel that you did enough to support my particular point of view on something. And the, the, the summary is that this is breaking apart the American evangelical church. So I'd like to take a minute to unpack that uh, and talk about what God calls us to. And the fact is, is that in any conversation politically, every side claims that Jesus is on their side. And they think that they hold the tension in the middle, myself included. And so even within the church dialogue, people are saying, well, it's clear that Jesus is on our side, which is, by the way, what happened in the first century. When the early church started, we should not be surprised that there was arguments about like, hey, we think Jesus is on our side. And other people would say, well, no, Jesus is on our side. And so in all this, it's getting, it's accelerating, it's getting a little crazier, and I'm giving us at least a year out from the next, like, midterm election where there will be a lot of that. I'm giving us a year to kind of change who we are. Um, I know we had these elections, and that was just a taste of what's about to happen, and all of you lived through the 2020 election, uh, and that was uh, super fun and easy. And so, uh, you know, <laughs> and so, you know, we have to find a way to think about this differently because we are not meant to live in fear. We're not meant to live in fear. We're not meant to live like always afraid of things, especially when the people of God are supposed to be marked by one of Jesus' main commands. One of the things that Jesus said the most, and one of the things we read about in the Bible most, is a, it's a command to Jesus' followers, which is this. 
fear not. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. And yet there is so much fear. There's so much confusion. There's so much anxiety around this that we've got to find a different way. So if you're keeping track of the notes, if you have a little thing and a little pen, does everyone have a... Um, so if you're writing all the notes, um, my first fill in the blank is this. We have an opportunity to disagree politically and still love unconditionally. We have an opportunity to do something that no one else can do because they don't have a king named Jesus that can stand apart from the fray. And I think, just for the record, it's super clear that everyone should vote. Everyone should vote. It's super important. It's super important to advocate. It's, uh, Christianity is not neutral. Uh, we're not an apolitical, the one word, apolit- we're not an apolitical movement. And it's impossible not to engage in cultural issues. And you and I should be informed and we should hold our opinions strongly. But we have an opportunity to disagree politically and still love unconditionally. And here's the simple, hard question. I want to ask you something that's really hard. And some of you are going to say, hey, I don't want to do that. I don't think I can do that. I mean, you know, I'd be happy to do it once the world settles down a little bit. But it's a simple question, and I'd love for you to fill it in. Are you willing to evaluate your cultural worldview through the filter of your faith rather than create a version of your faith that supports your cultural worldview? And you might say, Chris, I'm not going to do that. I'm not willing to do that. I'm not, you know, Jesus doesn't get to be the most important right now. I have to worry about that later because what is at stake in our political discussion is way more important than that. And I would just, if that's you, if that's where you're at, I would just have to ask you, well, what do you think it means to be a follower of Jesus? What do you think it means? And I get here in this field, any number of people that are watching me today, you might not follow Jesus, and I get that. But my hunch is, uh, my hunch is, is that you get to, because you get to listen in on a family conversation here, my hunch is that if people were to actually take Jesus seriously, you might be more attracted to faith than you are right now. Because Jesus has some really powerful things about what it means to put him first and then evaluate everything else. And, you know, um, the other thing I want to say, and then we're going to look at God's word, is this. You know, some of you might be listening right now and you might say, you know, I'm glad, Chris, you're doing this. I'm glad you're talking about this. I'm glad you're going to get those other people. (laughs) And you're talking to them, right? And uh, somebody needs to talk to them because their views are a little out of whack. That's That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you. I'm talking about you and the way you process your faith. And do you look at it through the filter of politics first or your cultural worldview? Or do we put Jesus first? So even in the midst of all this chaos, even in the midst of everything that's happening in our world, Jesus does something and he prays something. And I want to talk with you about that briefly. Um, Jesus, right before he dies, he prays. And it's his high priestly prayer, which is, you know, what he does before he goes to the cross. And he prays this prayer because he knew that things would come into the church that would seek to divide us. And if you're following along, there's something um, on your handout in John chapter 17. And this is right after the Last Supper. He has this large discourse, and he's praying to God his Father. And he says in John 17, 1, he says, After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come 
glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. Here we see that Jesus, he's about to go to the cross. And what Jesus means when he says that, says that God is most glorified in Jesus. And when Jesus hangs on the cross, naked and bloody, what God says is his glory, what would glorify him, we would be horrified. We would be horrified by the image, imagining God suffering in this way. But the scriptures make an argument that in this terrible, horrible moment is actually the moment that Jesus is most glorified because he took on sin and because he took on death to set us free. And because of this moment, this terrible moment, you and I, we have life with him. And so he goes on in verse 11. He says, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. And Jesus has a prayer that his Jesus followers would remain as one. And it's clear that God, he's asking God to protect them, but doesn't mean physically, because what we know from the scriptures uh, and what Jesus said is that all of his disciples were probably going to die. So he's not protecting them physically. He's asking God, his Father, to protect their oneness, their connectedness. Why? Because he knows that there will be things that will come toward them. There will be people and places and things that will seek to divide them. And he's saying, God, I ask you, I beg you, please don't let the world divide them. Don't let them be divided. There's going to be ways that they disagree. But by your power, God, will you make them one? Now, this prayer is for the disciples right before Jesus went to the cross. But it runs all the way down to you and to me. It wasn't just for them specifically. It was also for us. Look what he says in John 17, verses 20. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have been sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So what is the result of this oneness? What is this oneness for? Is it so that you and I can be more comfortable, that we can live life on easy street? Is it so that you and I can have a really just, real, just a really great religious time? No, the result of the oneness is so that the world, the watching world, might know who Jesus is, and they might believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be. That people all over our country, people all over our city, the people in our neighborhoods, the people that live in our buildings, they would say, look right there. That is the church of Jesus Christ. Look how they love. Look how they are one with each other. Look how they take care of one another in the midst of massive disagreement, in the middle of massive division. And the watching world will go, what is this? What is this thing 
that brings together people who are black and white? What is this thing that brings together people who are rich and poor? What is this thing that brings together male and female, that brings together Republicans and Democrats? What is this thing? And then the church in one voice would stand and they would say, you know, it's because we are children of the living God. That God has done something in this world. Jesus has done something. He has showed us his love. And now we are one because of Jesus' love. And yes, we disagree on all kinds of things. And yes, we don't always get along. But we are one in Christ. And because of that, the watching world would be like, this is some kind of a miracle. This is some kind of amazing thing that's happened. Who is this Jesus? How do I come into life with him? All simply because of our oneness with one another. And so Jesus believes that somehow this oneness is predicated on the way we love one another. That we one love one another in the midst of disagreement, in the midst of not understanding each other, in the midst of coming from different backgrounds. And so we even read about this in, uh, in John chapter 13, a few chapters earlier at the Last Supper. This is what he says. He says, you can follow along. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Sounds pretty good, right? Sounds really interesting. Yeah, love one another. Let's all give each other a fist bump. Yay, I'm in. Let's love one another. But here's the catch. Jesus does not say you get to decide how you want to love one another. He doesn't say you get to decide when you want to love one another. And if you look a little bit more closely, he does actually something a little bit more difficult. He invites us into something a little bit more terrifying. He says, everyone will you know, you will know you are my disciples in the love that you have for one another in the same way that I have loved you. And so Jesus says that we have to love one another the same way that Jesus loved you. And so what is he saying there? He's saying, I gave myself up for you. I was a servant. I cared for you when I was smart and where you were stupid. When I knew what was right and you didn't know what was right. When I knew what was wrong and you didn't know what was wrong. I suffered for you. I served you. I loved you. Now here's my command now. Love one another in the same way that I have loved you. And when you do this, you will be showing the watching world that you are my disciple. Now, stop for a minute. How many of us have really ever prayed this prayer? Jesus says, you will, they will know you are my disciples if you love one another. God, will you help them to be one? Like, this is his last prayer before he goes to the cross. And, if we, and he's saying, you know, guys, if we get this wrong, if we get this wrong, we get everything wrong. This is mission critical. We have got to love one another. There's going to be, God, there's going to be things that are going to divide these people. We can't let this happen. Father, I'm begging you, please let this happen. Let them remain as one. How many of you have prayed the same prayer? And how often? Is that like a daily prayer for us? How many of us have prayed that prayer? Lord, make us one in the midst of our differences. God, I know that there's people in this church. I'm not talking about everyone in the whole city. God, there's people in this church. We believe different things. We have different opinions. Lord, teach me how to love someone who thinks differently than me, that has a different cultural worldview than me. God, help me to uh, love and care for somebody 
who votes differently than I do. They are my brother. They are my sister in Christ, and I completely disagree with them. God, teach me to love them. Teach me how to connect with them well. How many of us have prayed that prayer? What we read in church history is that the early church took this very seriously. That it isn't some totally naive, some totally idealistic vision that's unattainable, but just still good to strive for. What we see in the first few centuries of the Christian church is this idea of oneness. It sweeps across the Roman Empire in the middle of massive disagreements. And people are suddenly going, wait a minute. There's something different about these people that's so compelling. They disagree with each other at about almost every level, and yet they sit and worship together. Then people who would never, they would never thought to be together, rich, poor, slave, free, different kinds of racial backgrounds, all together in one unity, one moment, one community. And um, I don't know how many atheists we have here today, but maybe you know an atheist. They would say that there is no God. And I don't know if you're an atheist here, but you still have to admit that historically speaking, that Christianity changed the world as we know it. You know, you may not know what you believe about God, but you have to admit from history, my gosh, these people, the way they loved each other, shifted the entire course of human history. And the scriptures say that Jesus' prayer for unity is the thing that makes that happen. So let me make this very personal. Let me make this very direct. We live in a very young country. Our country is just a little over 200 years old. And we've had some political leaders that have done some pretty incredible things. Yay for them. And then we have some people, some political leaders that have done some not so good things. Boo. And it's, we have some leaders that have gotten it right. We have some leaders that have gotten it wrong. So my question to you is this. Why in the world, as a Jesus follower, would you commit your heart and your soul and your mind to something that is as temporary as opposed to something that is eternal? Just think about this. There's, in American history, there's been so many political parties that have come and gone since the start of our country. In this short amount of time, Americans, you know, we've, uh, we, there's political parties where people have fought for those beliefs. I mean, for instance, how many of you, by a show of hands, are um, officially a part of the Whig Party? Any Whigs? We got any Whigs? No Whigs? No takers? How many Federalists? We have any Federalists? I see you. I don't see you because there's none. It's gone. They don't exist. They're gone. And these are like powerful political parties that existed in our government. And people actually gave their lives for some of those views. And like, now they're like gone. They don't even exist anymore. Did you know that it is likely that you will change your mind on a significant issue in the next 10 to 20 years? You will change your mind on something. So why would you commit your heart and your soul and your mind and divide between you and another human being over something so temporary when the scriptures are simple and they're clear that we will worship a king one day who is eternal. And in 10,000 years from now, we will worship Jesus. 
We will be with Jesus. We will be exalting the king that is above every other king that is above every other government. And my hunch is any of the things that we're experiencing right now politically, uh, socioeconomically, culturally, we won't be talking about any of those things anymore. They will be but a whisper in our past. And as you and I are connected to and loving and serving people who are completely different from us, it just makes more sense to live into the reality that will be in 10,000 years. That we must live into the reality and fight, not for divisiveness, not for our personal political beliefs, but we have to fight for unity and for love and for connection above anything else. And my simple prayer for you is the same simple prayer that Jesus asked us to pray. God, make us one so that we can influence many people. And that's my prayer. Jesus prayed it. It's what he asks you to pray. And that doesn't mean just in our church. It means the church across our city and across our nation and across our world. Now, there's a percentage of you saying, Chris, you know, uh, you're really naive. Um, and I'm so appreciative that you're saying it in your mind and not out loud because that'll distract me. I'm not that good. You're so naive. And yeah, you did your job. Yay, you talked about Jesus. Good job. Way to go. I'll talk to you. Hey, thanks for talking about Jesus at a Jesus church. That's good. You did your job. And we, But we live in the real world. How can you be so naive as to think that we could actually love people we disagree with? How could you be so naive? Well, let me tell you what's naive. What's naive is a rabbi in the middle of nowhere, standing in the middle of nothing with a bunch of nobodies who are younger than him. And he's standing there and he's like, listen, Peter, James, John, Andrew, Andrew, stop, stop what you're doing. Come over here, Andrew. This little group of us, like I talked to you, this little group of us, we're going to do something that's going to change the entire world. And in Matthew 18, he, Jesus looked at his little group of 12 and he says, listen, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail. The gates of hell won't overcome it. We're going to start a movement here, boys. Who's in? We're going to transform the entire course of human history. That's what we're going to do. He's talking to the 12. He's saying all these things. And you and you can imagine these guys, these basically teenagers, young adults, maybe, um, you know, 20, maybe some of them are like 17, 18, some of them are like 20, 21. They're young. They're not educated. They're not from big families. No one, none of them actually came from like a wealthy, substantial family in the culture. And they're looking at each other going, you know, he's not talking to us. The 12 of us? We're not going to change the world, are we? It turns out that he did. He did mean those 12. And they changed the entire course of human history. That's naive. And what we're doing in this church, and there's great churches all around Santa Monica right now that are doing the same thing. What we're all doing is a continuation of that. We are meant to be those people. We are meant to live into unity. So, I want to give you a couple challenges. The first challenge is this. 
The challenge is that you and I would learn to pray. Uh, pray the way that Jesus prayed. That we would pray for unity among all of us here in this room, among all believers. That we would pray for each other in spite of our differences. And the prayer doesn't even have to be long. Just say, God, help our church to be one. Help our church to live in together as one, regardless of our different beliefs. And the second is this, that you and I would uh, take seriously the scriptures and love someone unconditionally, somebody who you disagree with politically, someone you disagree with, you know, some of the cultural differences that you have, your worldviews don't align, that you would love them this week, that you would do something ridiculously gracious and kind to someone you think is absolutely crazy or somebody who offends you or someone who holds irreconcilable differences in views that are completely incompatible with your own. And they think you're crazy and they will think you're wild. But if you live into this, we will be living out the prayer of Jesus. And I'm telling you, by doing this, by practicing this, living this out, this is the thing that will endure forever. The things that won't endure forever are some of your deeply held beliefs right now. But the thing that will endure forever is how you loved and how you cared for people, especially if they're different than you. And so our hearts need to change. Our hearts need to change. We need to take on the same heart that Jesus has. And the Church of Jesus Christ, uh, is in, it's essential for us to do this. And, uh, you know, some of you right now are probably saying, you know, I can't do that. And then I just, I guess I have to ask you, well, what does Jesus mean to you? What does it mean for you to be a follower of Jesus? Because this is it. This is the whole project. God shows us his love through Jesus, and then we have to show love to others. That's the only way this works. That's all we're going to do. So will you allow your faith the filter of your faith to influence your cultural worldview and your politics and not the other way around? Will you, will you allow that to happen? Will you invite God into that?